Yo, it's been good to worship with you guys this morning. Hey, we're going to jump right into the Bible. If we haven't got a chance to meet yet, my name is Jared. I get to be on staff here. I get to do a, a plethora of things here. Uh, please come and find me after it, and, and we can chat a little bit. Um, but I want to get right to the text. We have a lot of text to cover. Don't have a lot of time to get to it. So if you have your Bibles, pull those out. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Uh, and we're going to come like right there at Mark chapter 11, verse 12. And we're going to come all the way through Mark chapter 12, verses 1, all the way through 40. And so we, you see we have a lot to get through, so we got to get to it. And as you see in Mark chapter 11, it opens up. And that headline first you might see is this triumphal entry. We're not going to preach through this uh, section right here, but if you want to hear this message, you can go back to our Easter message. Uh, Rob teached on it back then. But I do kind of want to springboard from here and set our passage up. You see, in this triumphal entry, Jesus is rolling into Jerusalem. He's on a donkey because, right, all kings ride donkeys. And the people are laying palm branches at his feet. And it's this, like, symbolism of royalty, right? Jesus is coming. This king is here. And there's this thing that these people are shouting as Jesus is coming into town, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. As I was reading this text and I was coming in preparation, like I was, I was reading that portion and I was thinking, man, I wish that the people knew and understand what they were saying and that they actually meant that deep down in their heart, Right? if you know the scripture, just a couple chapters later, the same people who are sitting here screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, will actually be sing, saying, crucify him. I have a question for us this morning. Right? How do you go from Jesus is the Messiah to Jesus is dead to me in the matter of a week? Here's the answer. You reject his authority. In America, I, I think it's safe to say that we have this kind of love-hate relationship with authority. Right, you look back into history and how the nation was even founded, and the nation was founded on a protest. <laughs> and it really hasn't changed much ever since. Like any given day, you can go downtown Madison, and you can see people there protesting and railing against the government for any other reason or another. And if we're honest, they found some really creative ways to do it, haven't they? <laughs> And you want to know what? I think I'm guilty of some of that too. Like all of us might be, but I won't talk about y'all this morning. I'll just talk about myself, right? Like that's me. I tend to want to rail and push against authority in my life. See, I might not carry signs to the Capitol. I might not walk indecently exposed around the square, right? But you know, I might say some things under my breath. Or I might talk to some of my close friends and vent to them about the authority in my life. Have you ever been there? Or maybe you're like a social media person, right? And you take to Twitter and you put some things and you share things that, that you ain't supposed to be sharing, right? And it causes the storm. Or you go on Facebook and you share something that gets under your distant uncle's skin. The next thing you know, he's commenting and you're in this worthless argument, and now you got like 200 comments, 15 shares, and the world's going crazy, right? <laughs> and, and, and it never should have been that way in the first place. But you see, things like this often stem from a harmful view of authority. And the reality is that we simply don't trust it. And might I submit that sometimes we feel this way about the authority of Jesus. 
Can we be honest for a moment? Like we often put up a fight when the things that Jesus wants bumps up against what we want. Like we're ready and willing to turn around to Jesus and say, yo, I'm not going. And if I'm going, I'm not going willingly. You're going to have to drag me. I'm going to go kicking and screaming. See, for many of us, Jesus has been longing to get some time with us in his word, and he's been waiting for us to come to him in confession, and the Spirit has been waiting for us to trust and be led by him, and he's been prompting us to forgive the people, maybe in our lives, that have wronged us. And we just keep rejecting him and rejecting him and rejecting him. And I say all this to say that we're going to see some people in our text this morning who are dealing with this same problem, right? They keep rejecting Jesus. And what I want to do is kind of shrink this gap between them and us so that we can rediscover the truth about Jesus' authority or maybe for some of us, maybe understand Jesus' authority for the first time. So if you're in the text, Mark chapter 11, I'm going to start reading in verse 12, and it says this. On that following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Right, so Jesus comes in. It's the triumphal entry. They're in Jerusalem. He's hanging out. They visit the temple for a minute. But at the end of the day, they leave Jerusalem. They go down to Bethany, and that's where they stayed this night. And so he's here. So when we come into the text now, it's the next day, and he's leaving from Bethany. The text says that he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And so he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus and his disciples, they're coming up from Bethany. And if you know in the text, like Bethany is this place, it's this city where some of Jesus' closest friends live. Right, Mary and Martha, if you know the story of them. And then Lazarus, if you know the story of him, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. These three people, brother and sister trio, they live in Bethany, and Jesus and his disciples stay there. It's kind of their headquarters. And as they're returning, and they see this fig tree, Jesus gets hungry. And he sees this fig tree, and he sees that it has leaves, which should mean something. It should mean that it has figs. But when he walks up to it, it doesn't have any figs. And listen, the text shows us that Jesus throws a fit. <laughs> like, my man isn't just hungry, he's hangry in this text. Y'all know what that's like. You know how you get to a point where you feel so hungry where it starts to affect your mood? Like your stomach starts telling your mind that you're hungry and then your mind starts telling your emotions that you're just mad <laughs> and angry. Like that's probably some of y'all right now that walked in today, <laughs> you know. I feel like it's on me to tell you that the person you're sitting next to, right, it's, it's not you. They just didn't have their Rice Krispies this morning yet. See, Jesus needed a Snickers <laughs> bad. And if you look even closer, it says that the fig tree didn't have figs because it wasn't the season for figs. And as I was reading this, I was like, man, this could mean one of two things, right? Like, either one, it wasn't the season for figs, and Jesus had this premature reaction against the tree. He shouldn't have expected to have fruit. It could have meant that, or it could mean number two, it wasn't the season for figs, and the, tree has, and the tree was being judged for fraudulent activity. 
In other words, it was claiming to be something that it wasn't or claiming to have something that it didn't have. And if Jesus' actions are right, which they always are, then he had to have some reason for why he curses this tree. And so we're left to believe option number two. See, the tree isn't just this tree that's a fig tree, but the tree in this story represents the people of Israel. See, many times throughout the Old Testament, Israel will be known as a fig tree or even a vineyard, and we'll see that here in just a little bit. But often in texts in the Old Testament, it refer to Israel as a fig tree, and, and, and prophets would be sent to it, people of God, to see if it has any fruit, and oftentimes the tree would be barren. So that's what we have here. The illustration of the fig tree is not just a tree in general, but it's Jesus who has authority casting judgment on a tree that should have been bearing fruit. So they get past the fig tree and they come into Jerusalem and he enters the temple and he begins to do something here. Look at this at verse 15. It says that he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything from anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. See, Jesus enters into the temple and he comes into the temple and he has this type of righteous anger. Like there's some things that are going on in the temple and he's looking and he's singing. He's like, listen, this isn't what my house is supposed to be made for. So what does he do? He starts to overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Why would he do this? I, I think we have to understand a little bit about what the temple layout would have looked like in this day. Like the temple sat there in Jerusalem and it had these walls that came up around it. And these walls had these doors and these gates. And you could come into these doors. And once you entered into the doors, you entered into the Gentile court. And this is where a lot of the activity was happening, right? You can exchange your money. You could buy sacrifices, all this kind of stuff. If you were Jewish, particularly a, a man Jew, like you could come in and you can grab a sacrifice, go into the temple and sacrifice your sacrifice. But the Gentiles had to stay around the Gentile court. And people often connected themselves in Jerusalem by walking in one gate, walking around the Gentile court and coming out the other as if to save time to come through the city. And the text says that Jesus was stopping people from doing that. And he was stopping people from changing their money. And he was stopping people from selling pigeons. Why? You see, at this time, it was getting close to Passover. And so Jews from around the Roman Empire would be coming here to celebrate Passover, and they would want to come in, and they would want to exchange their currency for the currency acceptable by the Roman Empire, and they would want to buy their sacrifices. But as they were doing so, the money changers would take the coins of the people coming in, of the Gentiles who would want to show respect, and the people around who were also Jews, and they would take their coins and say, hey, your coin isn't really worth what, it's, what you value it that it's worth. And they would lose money as they're coming in to the temple of God to offer sacrifices. And they would only be able to afford the smallest of sacrifice, perhaps, to pay honor and tribute to God. And Jesus comes in and he sees this activity and he's outraged in this temple. 
specifically at the activity in the Gentile court. And he says, listen, my house should be called a house of prayer and worship for all nations, Jews and Gentiles, and you have turned it into a den of robbers. You're robbing people blind. See, Jesus overturns the tables and the seats of the pigeon sellers in the temple because he, one, has the authority to do so. But two, because of the same reason why he cursed the fig tree. See, there's a lot of hustle and bustle in the temple. But there was no righteousness. There was a lot of leaves in the temple, just like there was a lot of leaves on the fig tree. But there was no fruit that they actually longed for and worshipped and served God. And verse 19 says, and when evening came, they went out of this city. Verse 20 And as they passed by in the morning again, they went down to Bethany again, came back the next day, and they saw the fig tree. They passed by it, and they make this observation, and it was withered away to its roots. And then our guy Peter here, he chimes up and he remembers about what Jesus did the other day. And he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, which he doesn't even really get to what Peter's saying here, but he says something entirely different, and, and, I, and I think there's something to that. But here's what Jesus says. Listen, he says, have faith in God. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now they're on their way back to Jerusalem. They pass by this fig tree again. They make this observation. It's withered. And I love that Jesus kind of switches the gears here, right? He could, he could again talk about the temple. He could again talk about the fig tree, the leaves, lack of fruit, right? The lack of rice in the temple, but he doesn't go there. He goes to the root of what it looks like to have proper relationship and proper faith with him. And he says, listen, have faith in God. And then he talks about this idea of prayer. He goes into this prayer monologue and he says, listen, you have access to something. If you have faith and you pray and you commune with me. So the religious elites thought they had it. They had the leaves that looked like they had it, but they were really missing it. And Jesus is pointing to how we can really know that we have it. And part of it is this. It's that you have access to him through prayer. And I love that it says this here. I think there's a couple things that we can pull out in terms of prayer as we look at this text. I want to give you guys four keys to prayer, effective prayer, that we can see and pull out from this text. The first thing is this. Jesus says we can ask for whatever we want. He says you can ask for whatever you want, so long as it's in harmony with God. He doesn't add that, but he presupposes that, right? We can ask for literally whatever we want in prayer, so far as it is in harmony with God. Like this is the access we have to him, and this is the access he gives to us and wants us to have with him as we commune. But not only can we ask for what we want, but he even tells us to accept whatever you've asked for as if it's as good as done. He says you can ask for whatever you want. He says accept it as if it's already done. 
You know, we live in this kind of microwave culture where we ask for things, we come to prayer, right? We have literally the world at our fingertips and we live in this mindset that the things that I want, I can have them right now. If I click a button on my phone, if I go to my computer, I can get it on my doorstep in a day, <laughs> and sometimes even less. We live in this microwave culture, and this comes into our idea of faith, right? And when we go to God in prayer and we ask for things, we get impatient, and we grow weary, we get anxious. We want it bad, but we can't wait one day, let alone 20 years. But God is saying, yo, you can pray for whatever you want. You can accept it as good as it's done, but we have to accept it on his terms. It could happen now, or it could happen 20 years from now. But accept it. And the third thing is this, know that nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Like your prayers can be extravagant. He gives this illustration of this mountain and says, yo, if you speak to this mountain and say, be tossed into the sea, if you have faith, it will be moved. He's speaking in hyperbole. He's not really talking about mountains. Don't go try that out here. Well, you can't try it here in Madison. <laughs> Wherever there's mountains. But he's saying that the things in your life that feel immovable, the things that are pressing on you, the things that would otherwise crush you, right? He's saying if you have faith in him, if you go to him in prayer, like you can actually access the power and authority that he has that will help you sustain and survive even the things that might otherwise crush you. And lastly, he says, adopt a forgiving attitude. Have you guys seen this? Like, how does this fit into this idea of prayer? He says in verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, he says, forgive, because if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Your harboring an unforgiving heart blocks the channel through which we access power and authority through God. One scholar puts it this way, that divine forgiveness toward a believer and a believer's forgiveness toward others are inseparably linked because a bond has been established between the divine forgiver and the forgiven believer. He says that one who has accepted God's forgiveness is expected to forgive others just as God has forgiven him. And if he does not, he forfeits God's forgiveness in his daily life. See, an unforgiving Christian is actually an oxymoron. <laughs> an unforgiving Christian is like this cosmic thief ripping forgiveness from God and hoarding it with ill intent to harm the people around them. And Jesus is trying to say like, yo, you have access to something. You have access to authority and power, but you have to access it through prayer. And he gives us liberty. You can ask for whatever you want, and you can accept it as good as it's done, and you can know that nothing is impossible as long as you adopt a forgiving attitude. Yo, this is good. I know it may sound like outside of the norm of what he's talking about in this text, but I think it lines right up because he bypasses all of this talk, and he comes right down to the foundation of faith and prayer. Jesus is appealing to Peter's inquisitive nature, which is the same nature that a lot of us have in here when it comes to the things of the faith. And he pulls the disciples over and he tells to them and he lets them know that if we just have faith, 
the power and authority to move and survive what might otherwise harm us and crush us and ail us can actually be accessed to survive those things, can actually be accessed by us through prayer. So Jesus takes them by the fig tree again and they go into Jerusalem again and they find themselves back at the temple. Look at this in verse 27. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay, so we see him coming back up from Bethany. They pass the fig tree. They talk about faith and prayer. And now they're back at the temple. And when they get there, like, the thing that's supposed to be happening is happening. Right? This whole platoon shows up. These authorities, these Jewish authorities, they come and they confront Jesus. He was just in the temple. He overturned everything. Nobody comes into the temple and does these sort of things, let alone a dignified rabbi like Jesus. And so this was obviously making some of the news, and it probably hit all the headlines around the city. And so these authorities, they come knowing Jesus is going to return, and they confront him here, and they have one question for him, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? And Jesus does what he likes to do, and I love how he does this. He jumps off the witness stand himself, and he points the finger back at them, and he says, listen, I have a question for you. And if you answer this, then I will tell you by which I have this authority. And he says, was the baptism of John the Baptist from heaven or from man? Answer me. And I love how they, like, get together. You can picture this scene of verse 31, these huge theological brains. They get in this huddle. They get together. They're like, okay, so so what are we going to say to Jesus about this, right? Like, well, if you say he's from heaven, you know, he will say, well, why then did you not believe him? But then they say, well, if you say he's from man, like, we're afraid of the people, right? For they all held that John really was a prophet. And so the best that they can do with all the education they have, with, with, with all the reputation they have, they come to Jesus and they give him their best answer and they said, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know. But I want us to know this, that their non-answer of we don't know was actually an answer. The non-answer we don't know was actually them saying, we don't believe John the Baptist or Jesus were sent by God. But since they didn't say this, right, Jesus responds to them and he says, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, I don't know about you, but that response from Jesus is unsatisfying to me. Like I envision being in the disciples' shoes and I'm witnessing this scene. And if I'm honest, right, like this would be the moment where I would be tempted to have my Peter-like outburst. (laughs) Right, because I'm here and I'm seeing Jesus and he has this interaction with these authorities. And I want to be like, yo, Jesus, just just show them. Just tell them by whose authority you do this thing. Like, like, yo, tell them. Tell them you're the son of God. Tell them you have all authority. Tell them that that you can do it. Just flex one time on them, Jesus. But he doesn't do it. But we need to know this, that similar to how much of an answer, the non-answer from these religious authorities was, so too was the non-answer of Jesus. 
See, their answer showed that they rejected that John's baptism and Jesus' authority was from God, but Jesus' answer showed that his authority could have come from nobody else but God. His answer was loud and clear, and he's saying with all robust chest out, he's saying all authority belongs to me. And this is my main point for us this morning. If you're taking notes, it's this, that all authority belongs to Jesus. And Jesus is saying that the reason why I can come and walk up in this temple with an attitude is because it's my house. And the reason why I can overturn the money changers' tables and the tables with the pigeons is because I hold this standard by which is just and unjust. And the reason why I can wither up this fig tree and claim to be the judge over Israel and the entire world is because all authority belongs to me. And Doc, so we need to know that the fact that Jesus holds all authority is good news for us. And so what I want to do is that we enter into chapter 12. There's a bunch of stories here. Uh, I went way over time last service. I'm not going to be able to, like, read every story. But here's what I want to do. I want to just show us five things that Mark is trying to show us about the authority of Jesus. And the first thing is this. We see that Jesus' authority establishes the church. If you look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, you see that it's this parable of the tenants. In verses 1 through 12, Jesus is telling this parable of this tenants in a vineyard. And when you see the vineyard right in the text, often it's kind of like how you see the fig tree in the text. It symbolizes Israel. Just like Israel was symbolized by the fig tree in the Old Testament, they are often always symbolized by the vineyard in the Old Testament. And the same thing is true. The idea is that these prophets and these people that are sent by God come to this place. They come to the fig, the fig trees. They come to the vineyards, and they're expecting fruit. But so often there is no fruit born. And as he was speaking, the authorities and the crowds around him would have quickly known he was talking about Israel with this analogy. And as he was doing it, he proceeds to say, that when the man who owned this vineyard sent his servants to visit the vineyard, God is the man. The servants are the prophets. The vineyard is the people of Israel. He says when the man sent his servants to visit the vineyard and retrieve some of its fruit, the tenants would beat them. And the text would say they beat some of them and they killed some of them. And so the man decides to do something extra. And he says, okay, I'm going to finally send my son now because of course they're not going to kill my son. Spoiler alert, they do. And so the man has to make a decision. What's he going to do now? And he says in verse 9, I want you to see this, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And here's what I want us to see. Look at verse 10. And he proceeds to quote Psalm 118. He says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, there's this consistent theme that tends to pop up in the scripture, and it's this theme, that God works good out of evil, right? Like what man means for evil, God will turn for good. If you think way back to the Old Testament and you go into Genesis and you read the story of Joseph, this is where this theme kind of shows itself for the first time. And in this text, Joseph as a young man has a bunch of brothers and they do away with him. They send him into slavery with the Egyptians. And when he's with the Egyptians, like Joseph has favor from God. 
And he ends up rising to the top ranks in Egypt, becoming second in charge to no one else but Pharaoh. And he's the one who's famous for coining this phrase, right? Like when he's forgiving his brothers, in the midst of doing that, he's saying, listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. See, this is a common theme throughout Scripture. And ironically, the church fits in the same theme. See, Jesus is the rejected stone that becomes the cornerstone. What does that mean? I think Ephesians 2 can shed some light on it for us. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this church in Ephesus. And in verses 19 through 22, he begins to say this to encourage this church. He says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers talking to this diverse group of people, this Jew and Gentile church in Ephesus, trying to learn how to do life with one another. He's saying, listen, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And I love what he says in verse 21. It says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, Jesus is the rejected stone that became the cornerstone that founded the church. See, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. But we also have to ask this question, like, what does this mean for Israel? If you finish the parable, it looks like Israel gets shut out, like they're outside of the promise of God. And, and over the course of time, teachers and seminaries have often taught that because the church gets instituted, then the Jews get rejected and replaced by the Gentiles. It's this idea often called replacement theology, right? But, but, but the text shows us that this is an errant thought. Paul will say again in Romans chapter 11, when he's talking about this idea of the Jews not being rejected, he says this to this church in Rome. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? He says, by no means. And he appeals to himself. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know when he appeals to the Old Testament what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. Similar to the vineyard story, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what's God's reply to Elijah? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so Paul draws that conclusion to this church in Rome, and he says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See, what's happening here is that Jesus is the cornerstone that's establishing the church. He's not replacing Israel. He's actually inviting Israel to something even more full. This is the church. It's an institution created by the hope of not excluding Israel, but including Israel in his plan. It's this multi-ethnic reality made up of Jews and Gentiles, but not on the basis of works, not on the basis of tradition, not on the basis of culture or ethnicity, but the basis of faith. It's because of this institution built on the cornerstone, formerly the rejected stone that is Jesus, that you and I even have the opportunity to be saved today. But the authority of Jesus establishes the church. The second thing is this. 
that the authority of Jesus is unshakable. In verses 13 through 17, we see this group of Pharisees and Herodians, they come up to Jesus and they ask him about this question of taxes. And back in this day, like there were a few ways that the Jews would think about paying taxes. There were three groups, the Zealots, the Pharisees, and the Herodians. And the, and the Zealots, like they had this idea that they were going to rail against Rome, right? And so their idea of paying taxes was that we're not going to pay it at all. Because if they paid, it meant that they would be enabling Roman rule in their lives. And the Pharisees, the second group, right, they didn't like to, play, to pay. Right? They were the more con- conservative theologically group in the bunch. They didn't like to pay, but they didn't actively oppose. Right? They were too dignified for that. But the third group, the Herodians, the more liberal theology thinking in the group, they didn't have any objections at all to paying the taxes. So as they approached Jesus, you know, Pharisees and Herodians had no business with one another unless to contrive against the king of the world. And so they come to Jesus with the goal not to really get his thoughts, but to strike him and to have him lose popularity with one of the groups. And look at what he says in verse 15. He says, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why would you put me to the test? He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they brought one. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, it's Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. See, I love this response of Jesus because it shows the strength in his authority. His authority is secure and it's unshakable. And he establishes a kingdom in the midst of insecure kingdoms. We know that the kingdoms of this world, they will scratch and claw and fight to get everything from their people. But Jesus is different as a ruler. He says, hey, you can actually give to your land whatever belongs to them so long as you give to me what belongs to me. See, it looks like as they come to him that they're going to see Jesus and he's going to make this point about the image of Caesar, but he ends up switching it and making it a point about the image of God. He says, if the coin has Caesar's mark on it, then go ahead and give it to him. But he looks at them in their eyes, and I can see him like peering straight to their souls, and he's saying, but listen, you don't have the mark of Caesar on you. And he wanted them to know this, and us by association, you don't have the mark of Caesar, you have the mark of God. Your possessions might belong to Caesar, but you belong to me. See, he doesn't flinch at the culture because he's secure and he's confident in what is rightfully his. And the third thing we see is this, that Jesus' authority validates the resurrection. In verses 18 through 27, we see a different group come up to him. This is the Sadducees. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, all different Jewish social political groups in this day, and they all had different viewpoints, but they all come together right here as if to come against Jesus. And when the Sadducees come against Jesus, they raise this really ridiculous point, but it has its roots in this idea of Levite marriage from the Old Testament, and they say to Jesus, hey, there's this story of this woman who's married, and she's had several husbands. In the resurrection, whose husband will she be, or whose wife will she be? And as they were saying this, Jesus sees right through them, and he understands this very real truth about the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't really care about this idea of marriage and divorce. That's not their end. What's true about the Sadducees is that they don't believe in the resurrection of God. 
They don't believe that we will inherit a bodily resurrection. They don't believe that Jesus would raise from the dead. They don't believe that there is an afterlife to be lived. And so when they come to him with this idea of marriage and divorce, they're not trying to trick Jesus on that. They're trying to say, hey, we don't believe the resurrection is true. And we're trying to get you to say that it's not true either. But y'all, we got to know that Jesus' authority establishes this reality. Part of the crux of the Christian faith, the reality is that this life isn't all that there is. That this life is actually groaning and mourning and waiting for something to be revealed, waiting for something new. When the authority of Jesus promises that if we have faith in him, that we will inherit that reality. The resurrection is true. You know, if I was studying for this message, I was uh, looking up these, these polls. And there's this research crew called Pew Research, and they do all these different polls. And I found this one that was super interesting to me about this idea of the afterlife. This poll would interview all these Americans post the pandemic, and they were trying to get this idea of has the pandemic moved people's faith at all? And no, the pandemic didn't do much to people's faith, but it does reveal something else, right? These polls were doing things and they were showing us like how many people would say that they were Christians and how many people believe in God. But one of the categories was how many people believe in the afterlife. And according to the research, here's what they found, that 61% of people believe in both heaven and hell. And 13% of people believe in heaven only, but 1% believes in hell only. But here's the one that got me, 26% don't believe in heaven or hell. And out of that 26%, they break that down even further and they ask, if they don't believe in heaven or hell, then what do they believe in? And here's the answer to those who responded. 21% of them said they believe that our spirits just live on. They have the right understanding that we have a spirit, but they say, like, the afterlife is this reality, that our spirit just lives on. Our consciousness just goes to another reality. 17% would say they believe in the reincarnation, that after death we are rebirthed into a new body, whether animate or inanimate. Like there's this cyclical experience, and the greatest good that we can ever accomplish is seek more enlightenment. 17% said reincarnation. 8% said that the afterlife is rejoining the universe. This idea that we come from the universe and at death that we will just return back to where we came from. And 11% said this, that we would just transition to a state of peace. Listen, one thing is true. Almost everybody in this life has thoughts about what will happen after death. There are many people who have many ideas of the things of God and the fear of what's beyond the grave will have us thinking many things about this, but we need to know that Jesus's authority ensures that the resurrection of the dead and an eternal destiny with Christ or without Christ is the only end game to life. The fourth thing that we see about Jesus's authority is this, that it demands a decision. In verses 28 to 34, a scribe comes to Jesus and he asks about the most important commandment and Jesus will proceed to tell him many of the things that we have memorized, right? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
But as I was reading this text, I never really realized how awkward this exchange was, right? Like Jesus gives this answer to him, and then like he almost kind of responds in this patronizing way, almost mansplaining the same thing that Jesus just said to him, adding all this like ridiculous emphasis on stuff. And he gets done, and he's probably expecting Jesus to be like, hey, yo, great job, you got it. But the best that Jesus can say and muster up to him is say, hey, you're almost there, bud. <laughs> like you're not far, you almost got it. <laughs> but why did he tell him that? See, here's the thing. He's trying to establish something. He's trying to say that his authority requires something else. It's not just this idea of God. It's not just this idea of being good, right? He's saying you have to make a decision. I had this roommate in college. Um, he loved sports. And just a couple months ago, we were catching up and we were talking. And he lives in Colorado now. And he started this sports performance program. And he's doing, he's doing really good. He's training hundreds of kids. And we were talking about the program. He was letting me know about it. And I was like, man, that's so dope. I'm glad you're doing that with your, with your people. And he was like, yeah, you want to know what one of our slogans is? And I was like, yeah, tell me your slogan. He goes, one of our slogans is be a good person. And I was like, great, man. I, I love that for your organization. I love that you're instilling those values in your boys. But isn't it also like us sometimes as Christians to shrink down the Christian life to this reality that all it takes is to be a good person? Like we want to believe that receiving Jesus and coming underneath his authority will just simply allow us to do whatever we want as long as we're being good, right? And maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you still think that that's what it means to be a part of the Christian faith. Like I know some of us believe that the goal in life is just simply to be a good person, to be happy, to be charitable, and don't hurt nobody. Right? Like these are the three pillars of what it means to be a good person. Smile, share, and keep your hands to yourself. Right? That's what I tell my kids. And these are all good things. But Jesus wants us to know that they are lacking something. You know, the world is not short on good people. There's philanthropists, and there's humanitarians, and they're everywhere. Like, and some of them are the reason why, like, when we go to the coffee shops, like, you can't really finish your coffee drink without getting parts of your paper straw stuck in your mouth, right? Like, this is the reality. I don't know who okayed that, right? Like, that's really annoying. But nice people. And like this guy that comes to Jesus, Jesus might say to them, Yo, like, you're so close, but our niceness, like this isn't enough to get us there with Jesus. And neither are simply our theological views. We have to make a decision. Is Jesus king? See, every person in the world could wear a be a good person shirt, and it would actually mean nothing if they don't believe in Jesus. So the last thing we have to see about Jesus' authority is that it is ultimate. Jesus' authority is an eternal authority. In verses 35 through 37, Jesus says this thing. He's in the temple. And I love this part because nobody's even asking him a question right now. Like, they don't even got to ask him. My guy is on a roll, right? He's finally at the point where I wish he was at the beginning, right? He's just going. And he's like, yo, who are the scribes to say that the Christ is the son of David? Like David himself in his Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And what he's trying to say is that David himself calls Jesus Lord. And so how am I David's son? 
and the great throng heard him gladly. Listen, I am running out of time, and so I got to get through the rest of this really quickly. But here's the thing that I want us to stick with today, okay? We have to ask ourselves this question. If this is the, the, the authority of Jesus, if Jesus has all authority, then can Jesus' authority be trusted? And I believe the answer to this question is yes. And Jesus' authority can be trusted, firstly, because his authority is a good authority. It's a true representation of authority as it governs a diverse body of believers and holds together under what the Apostle Paul would say, one body, one faith, and one baptism for all time. And when we live under this true authority of Christ, he says that you will flourish and the world will be blessed and others will know and desire to know who I am because of you. His authority is that good. And secondly, his authority is secure as it offers a secure kingdom in the midst of insecure kingdoms. It's a security It's a secure authority that is not threatened by the weak attempts of the cultures who challenge it. It's a secure authority that says you can actually give to America what's America's and give to me what belongs to me. So long as we're clear on what belongs to me. Because you can give your taxes and your obedience to the land, but your worship and your allegiance is mine. And doctor, we got to know that he is worthy of it. Jesus' authority is a secure authority. Not only because it's strong, but because it goes beyond the grave. It calls dead people to life and it turns what's perishable into imperishable. It flies in the way that we think about the afterlife. Like, no, you won't just become some free-floating spirit. Or no, you won't be reborn into a, a tree or an animal. And no, you won't just rejoin the mysteries of the universe. And no, you won't just transition into a state of peace. Y'all, Jesus' authority says that what you have is even greater than that. He says, if you have your earthly life in me, then you have eternal life in paradise. And he can say that because his authority is that secure. Thirdly, his authority is a loving authority. He's a loving God with a loving law as it redefines what man turned into a law of merit, into a law of grace, compressing 613 commands into two. And if you call him your Lord, then you can follow him in radical love for God and love for neighbor. Fourthly, his authority is an ultimate authority. Through a lineage of Israelite kings, one of which is the great King David, Jesus reigns supreme. See, Jesus' authority can be trusted because it's good, it's secure, it's loving, and it's ultimate. It's the only one that delivers, and it's the only one that lasts. Amen? And we need to know this because if we don't understand that all authority belongs to Jesus and the kind of authority that he rules with, then we will begin to give ourselves to lesser authorities that at their best will leave us prideful and confused and disappointed and at their worst will lead us straight to hell. Listen, we have just a little bit of text left. I want to look at 38 through 40. Look at this. Jesus has a warning for us here. He says, and in his teaching, This is what Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts and who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They, he says, will receive the greater condemnation. Like make note, he's not talking about people who are far from God. He's talking about people who are actually near But we also have to know that we know from the writings of Paul that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we know he might be talking about those who are near, but he is not talking about those who love him and who have placed their faith in him. 
He's talking about the people who play pretend. The ones who have a lot of leaves on their tree, but no fruit. The ones who have a lot of hustle and bustle in their lives, but no righteousness. The ones who, whose lives are thriving and they're active. We have good health. We have good houses and good cars and good jobs and good families, but we have no righteousness because they failed to receive him. He's saying that these people have rejected his authority and their reward will be the greatest of condemnation. And one of the most pressing questions that I get from people who are antagonistic towards the Christian faith is this. How can a loving God do this? Like, how can a loving God condemn anyone? Like, if God is so loving, wouldn't he make it so that everyone could come to him in eternity? And here's the truth that we have to know. He actually has. He has made the way. Like, and if you're looking for the proof... To understand that Jesus would want nothing more than for everyone who has ever lived to come to a saving knowledge of him and to live with him eternity. Look no further than the cross. His blood poured out for me and for you and for anyone and everyone who believes and places their faith in him. And so listen, if you came in this room today and you've been seeking... You don't know whether you believe in Jesus or not. Maybe this is your first time coming into church for a long time and you stayed away so long because you didn't know that if you could hear the name of Jesus and truly understand what he was about. Maybe you've been hurt. (laughs) Like that happens. I understand that. But Jesus has something for us. If you're a non-believer in the room, I want you to know that your eternal life hinges on nothing else but what you think about the cross. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Savior of the world? Is he God in flesh who reigns with all authority? And are you a sinner? And is Jesus the only one who can take your sin? And is he the only one who can impart on you all righteousness? Listen, if you believe that this is true, then Jesus as the true king can become your true king as you submit to his true authority. So for a moment here, what I want to do to apply this to us, I want to go into a moment of prayer and meditation. So if you, where you're at, just bow your heads and close your eyes. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or come to the front or anything like that. <laughs> but I want us to just go into a moment of prayer and reflection here. And as you're in this place, I want you guys to be thinking about something. I want you to be thinking about a few questions The first question is this, ask yourself, do I submit to my own authority more than I submit to Jesus' authority? Like as I go through life, am I the captain of my own ship? Am I the one who operates as the main master of my own fate? Like is this you? Do you answer to yourself before you answer to the authority of the scriptures? Do you operate on your own authority more than you operate on Jesus' authority? Secondly, ask, where in my life have I rejected Jesus? Like, have I been rejecting Jesus' advances to commune with me in prayer? Have I been rejecting Jesus' advances to commune with me in reading his word? Have I rejected Jesus' advances to commune with me as I gather with the people of God? Have I rejected his authority? 
in my life? Where have I rejected Jesus? And lastly, ask, am I aware of the riches that come from the submission to Jesus? Are you aware of the submission that comes to Jesus? Listen, we have to know that the authority of Jesus is good and it is kind and it's loving and it's not only that, but it also comes with gifts. <laughs> when we submit to the authority of Jesus, we get a new life. One not marked by your failures, but one that's filled with grace. And you get a new name. When once you were called lost, and you were called foreigner and stranger and enemy of God, you now, under the authority of Jesus, you get to be called saved. You get to be called loved. You get to be called child, adopted, friend of Jesus. Not only do you get a new life, a new name, but you also get a new family, led by the greatest father you could ever have. In a world full of authorities that are harmful and abusive or even neglectful, Jesus offers us something different. An authority where we can find safety and comfort in his rule. Doctor, there is joy in submitting to Jesus. There is peace when submitting to Jesus. There is life in submitting to Jesus because his authority is true. It is secure. It is loving. And it's ultimate. Let me pray that we receive this. Father, we're grateful for you. Father, I'm thankful for your son. I'm thankful that you sent him. I'm thankful for his work on the cross, and I'm thankful for what his work on the cross accomplishes. Salvation for all who believe, but also authority to rule in his kingdom. And we get to be invited to be in that kingdom as we sit under the authority and the rule and submit ourselves to the rule of King Jesus. Father, would you work it in our hearts to understand and believe that the authority of Jesus in our lives is a good authority. It's a powerful authority. It's an ultimate authority. Now there's no authority greater we're reminded through faith and prayer that the authority of Jesus that we have access to, it's a power that trumps all powers. There is no circumstance that's greater than your authority. There is no situation that's greater than your authority. There is no sickness that's greater than your authority. Father, all things have to bow to you at your word. Would you work it in us to believe in this? Would you work it in us to desire it? Father, we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Doxa. So the good news about Jesus is that the one with all authority, he didn't use his authority to abuse, but he used it to serve and protect and ultimately draw near and lay it down for us. And as we remember this this morning, we're going to move into a time of communion. And communion reminds us that Jesus, who should have nothing to do with us, chose to come near. And he purchased this relationship by his blood. And the scripture tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, 
he sat with his disciples and he shared this meal and he took this bread and he broke it and he passed it around and he said, hey, this is my body that is broken for you. And then he took the cup and it was full of wine and he passed the cup around and he said, this is my blood that is poured out for you. See, when Jesus knew he was sitting down with a group of friends that he called friends, knowing that he would turn around and reject his authority in merely hours. You know, we can identify with that and we can receive what Jesus wants for us. He doesn't hold that against us. He paid a way where we can draw close to him. And this is what we get to remember in communion. What a scandalous way to display his authority. Y'all, all authority belongs to Jesus and he uses it to serve or find a way to draw close to us. So we're going to remember this now. Listen, if you guys look around the room, there's four places we can go to communion. Two right here in the front, two in the back. If you're not a Christian, I would say sit this one out. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ today, you can feel free. But this won't make sense to you if you haven't received the goodness of salvation from God. So we're going to sing a couple songs here. Feel free in the next two songs to get up and take communion.